the resurrection. The question is, what if Jesus really rose again from the dead? <clears throat> now, um, I don't know where you are uh, when you approach uh, the issue of the resurrection, but I guess that you probably fit into one of three camps. You're, you're utterly convinced by it, and you see it as something of um, um, importance for the Christian faith. Maybe you're intrigued enough by it to, to be here tonight, um, to see what all the fuss is about. But it could be that you are not convinced by the resurrection in any way, shape, or form, and you see it as a completely indefensible doctrine. Well, may I first say thank you so much for coming. I really mean that. I really mean that. It's great to be able to come and just have a look at some of these things um, that can be quite hard to think through on first sight. And also tonight you'll be able to ask questions. So think about what it is you want to ask me on the back of what I've been saying, and the resurrection deserves that that kind of critical look. And that's what we're going to do tonight. And in fact, that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ critically. Because for many people, and it could be one of you here, the resurrection is so implausible, it literally beggars belief. That means it begs the questions, why do Christians believe it? And that is a good question, because before we go anywhere, we have to admit that the resurrection is extremely important. Now, I've had conversations with uh, many people who would call themselves Christians saying, wouldn't it be great if we could just maybe abandon um, 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 our fixation on the resurrection, and it would be a lot easier for people to come and follow Jesus and follow Christianity. Well, the Bible doesn't let us do that. And let me explain why. This is a great way to start. You need to know this. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection, he's writing to a church, he's an apostle, and he's writing to a church um, all the things that are important about Jesus Christ. And he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve disciples. He goes on to say, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have since fallen asleep. So the Bible says that the resurrection is of first importance to the Christian faith. And in fact, the Bible goes one step further. Paul continues in his same book saying that not only is it of first importance, but I quote, if Christ has not been raised, Paul said, then our faith is futile. That means we Christians are to be pitied above all creatures. That's actually what it says in the Bible. In other words, the Bible itself says, if the resurrection does not happen, then Christianity is dead and Christians are fools. So we absolutely cannot sidestep the issue, which means then that we have to confront it. And very briefly, that's what we're going to do together. And sort of before we get to the question of what if Jesus really rose from the dead, we do need to look at the credibility of the resurrection itself. And in doing that, we're going to look at evidence for the resurrection by looking at three facts 
that we need to, um, to look at and to question as we go through the Bible passages of the resurrection. And then we're going to take five theories of how the resurrection could have been faked. And we're going to deal with those one by one and take those away so that finally we can maybe come to a conclusion. And to start off, we're going to read the resurrection passage in John 20. This is an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ, the book of John in the New Testament. John 20, verse 1 to 10. It's going to be on the screen behind me. I'm going to read through it, and then it's going to stay up behind me. I'm going to try and keep referring back to it as I go through tonight's talk. So this is John 20, verse 1 to 10. This is an eyewitness account of the resurrection. Early on the first day of the week, that's a Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter, that is one of Jesus' most trusted friends and disciples, and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. That's our text. That's what the resurrection was seen. If you notice from that, it's very, it smacks of eyewitness account. The running, the overtaking, the approaching, the tomb. And that's what we're going to use as our text for today. And it'll be up behind me so that you can see it. But first of all, the evidence for the resurrection. Let's have a look at this. We need to look at our three facts. The first fact is that we have an empty tomb. Now, Jesus is a popular guy. Lots of people followed him. Lots of people saw that he was crucified. And the narrative says that the tomb is empty. Many, many people would have known what was going on and where this tomb was. In fact, in many of the other gospel accounts in Mark that we've been going through as a church, we read that a guy called Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent member of the council, actually had this tomb, took Jesus and laid him in it. Now, it's interesting, if you were to make up the resurrection, you wouldn't name someone and designate a title to them if you were lying. That's quite dangerous, because someone can go and check and verify whether that person exists and whether the tomb is real. They could go and check these things out as it was being said. But what about the tomb being empty? This is really interesting. Jewish and Roman sources both testify to an empty tomb. Now, the Gospel of Matthew 28, verse 12 to 13, specifically states that the chief priests, those are the the rulers of um, Judaism at the time, they invented the story that the disciples stole the body. Now, there would be no need to do that um, if it wasn't true, if the tomb had not been empty. 
It's also interesting to note that not one single historian in the first or second century AD wrote against the tomb being empty. Neither is there one historian that mentions the positive finding of a body. Now, Tom Anderson, he's a high-ranking U.S. lawyer. He's looked into the resurrection. He says this, Let's assume that the written accounts of Christ's appearances to hundreds of people that we read earlier are false. I want to pose a question. With an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. Our second fact, the apostles' transformation. This is the disciples, what they went through after Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Now, it's recorded in the Gospels that while Jesus was on trial, the apostles, his disciples, the closest followers of Jesus, deserted Jesus out of fear. Yet 10 out of the 11 apostles died as martyrs believing that Christ rose from the dead. Now, what accounts for their transformation from men who were petrified for their lives into men who were willing to die for their message of Jesus and the resurrection? Peter himself, the most well-known of the disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends, he was so afraid of the backlash of Jesus' death that he denied three times through cursing Jesus that he even knew who Jesus was. That same man went on to preach the gospel of Jesus and his resurrection with boldness. And he was later crucified upside down. All the other apostles have very similar stories. His is just one. It is impossible, isn't it, to think that not one of these men would have recanted about the resurrection of Jesus if it were not true. No one would ever die these kind of deaths for something that you knew was a lie, especially a lie that literally serves no purpose. And what's our third fact? Well, it's the apostles preaching. Um, What the apostles were preaching and where they were preaching is very important in terms of the credibility of the resurrection. And it's important to note that the apostles began preaching about the resurrection in Jerusalem, in the very city where the resurrection happened, immediately after the resurrection happened. Every possible fact could have been investigated thoroughly. If the resurrection were false, it would have been discredited with ease. It really would have been. People would have been running to the tomb, showing people that it was false. And when we think of legends, they often happen in faraway places many, many centuries ago. And it's difficult to verify facts. With a resurrection, that does not happen. The teaching of the resurrection happens immediately after the resurrection itself in the city of the resurrection. So those are our three facts. And they're quite compelling. And they're all found in the gospel narratives. But what about... Our theories, some of the things that people say are objections to the resurrection from happening. Let's just look at these very quickly, and then I'll close with a conclusion. 
Our first theory, theory number one, the wrong tomb theory. Now, if we notice from the text, we see that it is women who find the tomb empty. And can you notice it was still dark? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Could it be, could it be that due to the emotion and the darkness, Mary and the other women get to the wrong tomb? They're excited about seeing it empty, and they go back and tell the disciples, thus creating the lie that we know today. Now, there are several problems with this. One, it's inconceivable that Peter and John, who follow them later, wouldn't have corrected them when they saw the mistake. And two, as we saw earlier, the tomb's location was practically broadcast. Even the opponents knew where it was. Everyone would have pointed out that they had got the wrong tomb. That just doesn't stack. What about the second theory, the hallucination theory? Now, this simply states that the resurrection occurs simply in the minds of the disciples. They're distressed. They want something hopeful to hang on to. And so they have this sort of mass um, psycho-hallucination thing going on where they all agree on what the resurrection should look like. That's been discredited by psychologists. Um, All agree that for the same hallucination to be seen by so many people in such detail is simply impossible. What about our third theory, the swoon theory? This theory states that Jesus didn't actually die. And this one, people really, really cling on to. Jesus didn't really die. He simply swooned on the cross and walked out of the tomb three days later. Again, many difficulties with this. For starters, the Romans who crucified Jesus were experts at killing. They would have absolutely known when he was dead, without question. And in fact, we read of of Pilate sending people back to go and check that Jesus is dead. We read um, of spears put into Jesus' side. We also read that the Romans didn't need to break Jesus' legs because he died so much earlier than all the other criminals around him. Jesus was definitely dead. This is what the Romans did. They were very good at this. He did not swoon. What about the fourth theory, the stolen body theory? What about the idea that the Jews and the Romans stole the body or moved it for safekeeping? Well, the question to this is, why? The Romans were desperate for Christianity to die. The Jews were certainly desperate for Christianity to die. Removing the body wouldn't have helped them. They needed to prove that Jesus wasn't God. They needed to prove that he couldn't rise from the dead. Removing the body and then keeping it a secret would only perpetuate what they didn't want to happen. So that doesn't make any sense. What about the last theory? Theory five. The soldiers fall asleep... And the disciples stole the body theory. Not particularly pithy, I agree. Now, this one is quite plausible. And as we said, in Matthew's gospel, we we see that the chief priests tried to force this as a theory. Matthew writes, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were sleeping. It seems that the resurrection had already taken ground. Plans were already afoot to disprove it. But let's have a look at that theory in and of itself. What if the the Romans fell asleep and the disciples stole the body? 
Well, one, if the soldiers were sleeping, how did they know that it was the disciples who had stolen the body? Two, how could the disciples sneak past the soldiers and then physically move a stone up a hill in absolute silence? Three, that the, the stone was, was, um, would have been marked with a Roman seal. It was um, on Roman guards. And don't forget that the apostles were petrified at this point. They would never have done something so risky. Four, the Roman guards would never have fallen asleep. They would have been killed by their superiors for doing so. They wouldn't even have lied about it. And five, finally, as we read here in the Gospel of John, we read of the grave clothes, which is really important. They were found lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. There was simply not enough time for the disciples to sneak past the guards, roll away the stone, unwrap the body, rewrap it in their wrappings, fold the headpiece neatly next to the linen. In a robbery, that would have happened so fast, and they would have fled in fear of detection. It would have been a mess. So those are our facts, and those are our theories. I realize I've rattled through them. I've raced through them a little bit. Um, and feel free to come back on me at those. This is what this whole evening is about. But... In the light of the evidence, what is our conclusion? Well, after everything we've looked at today, I think it's fair to say that you have to seriously consider that Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason I've gone through these hard facts and evidences for the resurrection is maybe to, to get you at least to the point where you might have to consider it. And that brings us to the question, what if it really did happen? What does that mean? And that's a really important question because some of us might get to this point in our thinking about the resurrection and go, okay, the resurrection might be fairly plausible and the evidence is okay, but ultimately, who really cares? Okay, so Jesus might have risen from the dead, but I don't see why I need to bother about it. Well, here is where we get to the crunch part of tonight. Because if Jesus did raise from the dead, then the repercussions are enormous. You see, the reason Paul says that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is futile and we're all playing a silly, dangerous game. Well, that's because that's true. We are. And it is true, because if the resurrection does not happen, then everything that Christ says and does in the Bible, and everything that Christianity stands for, is a complete lie. And Jesus says some astonishing things in the Bible. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, I am the only way, not one of many ways, the only way in which you can get to heaven and receive eternal life after you die. That is astonishingly arrogant if it is not true. Jesus also says, I am the resurrection and the life. This means that Jesus is claiming that he will in the future rise from the dead so that he can grant resurrection life to people who will believe in him. That's another astonishing claim, and dangerous if it is not true. Because Jesus is basically getting people to think that they'll be okay after their death, but actually he's lying about it. That's incredibly vindictive. But ultimately, Jesus says that he is God himself. 
He says he is the son of man, a name for the Messiah King, God's chosen one from all the way back in the Old Testament. And he calls himself the I am, the name that God gives himself when his people ask what they are to know him by, all the way back in the Old Testament. And ultimately, raising from the dead, isn't it, is is only really something that God would and could do. Which is why it's extraordinary. Which is why we're looking at the evidence, because it's extraordinary. And if Jesus cannot rise from the dead, then he simply cannot be God. And that means the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all the prophecies over the centuries that are recorded, it is all false. And Jesus is a dangerous fraud. But if the resurrection did happen, then Jesus was right. He is God, and the Bible is true. He is the resurrection and the life, and he is the only way to heaven. And that has extraordinary consequences for the whole of humankind. Because if the resurrection did happen, then what the Bible says about the human condition is true. We are a lost people who have run away from a loving God and we enjoy living in rebellion towards him. We want our own way, not God's way. And then we deserve a life without a good God. That makes sense, doesn't it? A life that we know is imperfect and difficult and full of suffering and a life that ultimately ends in death. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that the wages of that sin, of that rebellion, is death. If the resurrection is true, then what the Bible says about that is true. But if the resurrection did happen, then what the Bible says about the way of salvation for this fallen humanity is true. That a loving God sent his son to be fully human, to live the perfect life, and to die the worst death, so that instead of us dying as we deserve... Jesus dies as a substitute in our place. So that the wrath of the Father, instead of falling on us because of our rebellion, falls on Jesus. And though we rebels to God, we are now given life. While Jesus Christ, though perfect in front of God, takes our punishment and accepts death. That is true if the resurrection did happen. But ultimately, if the resurrection did happen, then what the Bible says about the life that the Christian is promised is also true. Upon seeing our condition in front of a good God, upon recognizing that Jesus dies for me and makes it possible for me to know God again as he takes away the rebellion that cuts me off from God, I am then allowed to ask Jesus to be my savior and find that death is not the end. The life of difficulty we know is not all there is. And that there is a better life to come where we get to spend eternity with this God who does everything to get me back from death to real life. Where, as the Bible says, there will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more evil and no more pain. That is what is true if the resurrection did happen. And if all that is true, and it is in the light of the resurrection, then I would say that we should care about the resurrection and its consequences. Because without Jesus, I am lost. Without him saving me, I am lost. 
But calling on him and recognizing him as my savior, I am able to rise with him. That's what the resurrection pointed to. Death not being the end. I get real life and a relationship with God again. But as we close, it not only affects our future life, it also has extraordinary repercussions for our life now. We know we live in a world that is far from right. And as such, the resurrection answers the question that there must be more to life than this. We look at Jesus rising from the dead and we can see that there is a life beyond death, a life beyond our current struggles and difficulties. Not only that, but the resurrection gives life now real purpose. I do have something to live for. There is something to get up in the morning for. Work is not useless and futile. That only ends in me accruing lots of stuff that disappears when I die and all I get is oblivion. Humans can work knowing that there's real reward and real rest with a good God. And I also see that God's plan for salvation means that my life has been well thought through. It's got a purpose. It's got a path to follow. I'm not aimlessly wandering through life waiting for the end with no hope. Also, the resurrection gives humanity real dignity. It helps explain that as a human race, we are important and we are significant and we are loved and we are highly valued. As God chooses to save us and get us back into a relationship at such incredible cost to himself. It helps us see that we are more than molecules and stardust, but highly designed beings made with individual brilliance and difference and vitality and diversity that was designed and well thought through. The resurrection means that relationships really matter, work really matters, life really matters, and ultimately, it means that there is something truly worth living for, that better life with Jesus himself. Wow, this is all pie in the sky when you die stuff. This is madness, some of you might think. And it is if the resurrection did not happen. But consider by looking at the hard and fast evidence as we have done, and by looking at the way you feel about life now as we have done, that the resurrection did happen. And I put it to you tonight that it absolutely did. That means you have a decision to make. And in the light of the resurrection, you can choose to ignore him. And you have to be 100% certain that the resurrection did not happen if you're going to dismiss him intellectually. Or you can choose to come to him and get to know him as your savior. As Jesus, who, because of the resurrection, is still alive. And revealing himself to you through the Bible, through your Christian friends that brought you here. And who wants to know you and who wants you to follow him so that you can be raised with him. That's what Easter is all about. That, that, that's what Christianity is all about. That's what church is all about. That's why we want to invite you into church so we can tell you this incredible news. And that's where I'm going to leave that with you. That is your decision. And that is our look at the resurrection. And that is what the Bible says is wonderfully true about humanity and about a good God.